Well, we're going to go ahead to, to, it's no surprise to anyone, continue on in the Gospel of John. We're going to work our way through verses, uh, chapter 12, verses 20 through 36 today. And we finished last week with the religious leaders saying, look, the whole world has gone after him. You remember that uh, he made his way from Bethsaida into to Jerusalem, and everybody was there with the palm leaves saying, the, you know, the, the king of Israel is here, and, and it, was, it was all exciting. And the Jewish leaders, they're a little frustrated because they wanted to get in there and snag him and kill him. They wanted to, to, to get him out of, of, out of the way, but it seemed like the whole world was following him. And in the very first verse that we're going to look at today, you're going to see that not only is it the Jews who are seeking Jesus, but now the Greeks are actually attracted to his teaching and they're making their way towards him. How many of you know that uh, the reality is, is that Jesus didn't just come to save the Jews. He came to save all of us. Jesus is the savior of the entire world, not just the Jewish people. And how many know that's good news for us? Amen. Yeah. Hallelujah. So when they came looking for him, um, Jesus' response when the apostles told, or the disciples told him that the Greeks were looking for him, is uh, of particular importance to us today because it carries so much truth and so much instruction for us today. You know, we, when, we, when we read the Bible, we recognize that it was, it was, it's written about and it's written to a specific people at a specific time, but that doesn't mean that what God uh, has inspired these men to write isn't still applicable to us today. And, and there's some good truth that we're going to look at today. We'll dive a little bit deeper into it shortly, but the, the, the short of it is, is that if, if, if you don't hate your life, that you live right now, you're at risk of losing life for eternity. And like I said, we'll dive into it deeper because you might say, well, that doesn't make any sense. What do you mean hate our life now? Don't worry. You're trying to get ahead of ourselves. We're going to get there. And then after this, we're going to see that for only the third time in all the Gospels that God is going to speak audibly. The first time was when Jesus was baptized. You guys remember that? Jesus gets baptized and God says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. The second time was at the transfiguration. And once again, he says, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. I think that should be for all of us. There's, a, there, there's some of us that need to listen to Jesus more, amen? And the third time is today when he's going to respond to Jesus, when Jesus asks the Father to glorify the name of the Father, amen? So let's go ahead and get started without any further ado. Verses uh, 20 and 21 says, Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Now we don't have a whole lot to go on about who these Greeks are. Um, we know that they went looking for Jesus, and, and that's about it. This is what we got. But as I was studying it, many of the scholars say that the, these, these Greeks were either proselytes or they were just God-fearing Jews. Now, a proselyte is one who has converted to, to, to another religion. In this case, a Greek proselyte would be one, a, a Greek that has converted to Judaism. 
Um, but there are also Greeks that haven't converted. They're not proselytes, but they're still God-fearing Jews. They are God-fearing Greeks. They still believe in God. And that would be, an example of that would be like in Acts 20, 1 through 2. Uh, and this is what it says. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household and gave alms generously to the people and prayed continually to God. So he hadn't converted to, Ju to Judaism, but he still believed in the God of Abraham. He still uh, gave alms to him, and he, he still uh, prayed to him continuously. So that's probably what we're looking at here. These Greeks are showing up, um, and they're one of those two things. And the, as I was reading, I found out they probably came to Philip because Philip is a Jew, but Philip is not a Jewish name. It's actually a Greek name. So they probably heard about this guy named Philip and figured he's the one that he could connect with. Philip was also from Bethsaida, and that's a town near Galilee, near the Greek territory, which was on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee. So it's also likely that Philip spoke Greek. How many know if you want to talk to somebody, it's good to find someone who can speak your own language. It makes life a little bit easier. And as I've already mentioned, Jesus wasn't just the Redeemer of Israel, but he was the Savior of the entire world. Now, as we've been studying this, I don't know if you've been writing notes or anything, but I want to I show you the theme that we see in the book of John. John 1.29 says, The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Not just the Jewish people, of the world. John 3.16, we all know that one, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. John 4.42, it says, They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. John 6.33, For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. John 8.12, And again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever falls, we will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Not only that, Jesus refers to other sheep that he's going to bring in. John 10, 16, I have other sheep that are not of this fold, and I must bring them in also, and they will listen to my voice. John eleven fifty one through 52 says, he did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. It's obvious that John understood the reality that Jesus didn't just come to save the Jewish people. He was the Savior of the entire world. God's salvation was going to be made available to all. And we see here in this short 1 verse 20, it says, Now among those who went to worship at the feast were some Greeks. We're starting to see a foreshadowing of what was to come, where salvation was not just made available to the Jews, but also to the Greeks. And then in verse 22 through 24, it says, Now among those who went up to... Oops. I guess it helps if I click it forward. 22 says, Philip, Philip went and told Andrew. And Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. So after receiving this request... Philip went and told Andrew, and then they went together to tell Jesus. I don't know if Philip just needed some moral support. He had to grab somebody else to come with him, but they both and go see Jesus. And the truth is, is there were likely many who wanted to come and speak to Jesus. But if you remember, 
the Pharisees were wanting to capture and kill Jesus. To be known as somebody who wanted to come and speak to Jesus, to be known as somebody who was seeking out Jesus, probably would have some pretty severe consequences in your life. You see, we already know that they wanted to kill Lazarus just because he received a miracle from Jesus. He was raised from the dead. We know that they wanted to kill the guy who was, or the, the guy, not, not kill him, but the guy who was, who was healed from blindness. They kicked him out of the synagogue. Being associated with Jesus, at least in that particular time and among the Jewish community, was not thought of highly, and it could cause you some, some pretty severe problems. So even though there were many who wanted to get in front of Jesus, they'd rather stay with the crowd and not be singled out. They were probably afraid of some extent what would happen to them to seek out Jesus. But the Greeks, they had no such proclivities. They either were unaware of the danger because they were traveling from where they lived, they're not part of the community, or they just didn't care. It, wasn't, it didn't seem like a severe consequence to them. How many of you know that if you're not part of the synagogue, getting kicked out of it is probably not that severe of a punishment? But after being told about the request to see him, this is what we have. We don't know if Jesus actually met with them. Jesus hears that they want to come see him, and instead he begins to teach and he, this is that important truth that I was talking about that he shares that is still so applicable to us today. And he starts by letting him know that the time has come, the hour has come for Jesus to be glorified. Now, I wonder what the apostles were expecting to happen right now. I mean, we know what, we kind of have an idea of what the Jewish people were expecting that were there to meet Jesus, right? They were calling him the king. They were, they were honoring him with palm branches. They were expecting him to come in and get some stuff done. I wonder what the apostles were thinking because they have a little more insight, but uh, as we've seen this entire, entire letter, turns out they misunderstand Jesus all the time as well. Now you have to imagine this picture. Jesus shows up in Jerusalem, and he doesn't just have a few Jews following him. He's got a bunch of Jews following him. And then he's got a bunch of Jews waiting for him. It seems like he's got an army gathering around, but it's not even just the Jews. The Greeks are showing up as well. He is showing up at the gates of Jerusalem with just a massive amount of people surrounding him. And I would imagine they were thinking like, man, this is exactly what it's, this is, it's working out just like we thought. He's showing up with an army. He's going to overthrow the Roman rule here. This is just the beginning. He's coming. He's going to do it. And then he does, in fact, declare, the hour has now come. But now Jesus is talking about not some upcoming military victory, but he's actually speaking of his upcoming death as a future event. You know, previously, Jesus always talked about his death was something that was coming, as something that had to happen. But now Jesus is saying the time has come. And he begins to describe the process of what being glorified is going to look like. And he uses this illustration of a grain of wheat to, 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 to declare about his own death. How many know when you're expecting a, a warring general to come save you and he starts talking about things falling to the earth and dying, maybe that's not quite what you were expecting. But that's the thing. As Jesus is trying to explain to them, listen, if you have a grain of wheat, how many know if the grain of wheat stays attached to the stalk, it never grows another plant? It never grows. What has to happen is it has to fall and be disconnected 
and actually die when it dies. And it can sprout up another plant. It grows and it can bear fruit. So that's what he's saying. Listen, guys, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He's describing to them what's going to happen. Like, listen, I, I'm going to die, but I'm going to bear much fruit. Yes. Thing is, is that for us, with the benefit of hindsight, it's all amen and woohoo. But imagine them. They're still thinking that Jesus is going to come in and set them free from, from the Romans. They're still waiting for a conquering Messiah. And then he goes on in verse 24. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will, be my, ser- there, there will my servant be also. And if anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. So just as he described what had to happen for him to be glorified, he then begins to share a message for those who are following him. How many of this message is still true for us today? This is a message about priorities. If we want to follow Jesus, we must understand that our life comes secondary to him. Jesus needs to take the preeminence in our lives. To be a true disciple, we must consider our own lives forfeit. Because here's the thing, if you're devoted to your own life, your own goals, your own ambitions, your own dreams, ultimately you're going to lose your life. But it says, no, we need to hate his life in this world. If we we hate our life in this world, then we're able to keep our life for eternity. So then you have the obvious question. What does it mean to hate your life? And I think to describe it simply is to be so is to be committed to Jesus so fully that what he wants and what he desires is more important than what we want and what we desire. It's a matter of priorities and perspective. Compared to serving Jesus, our life if you look at, 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 at how we feel about our life and how we feel about serving Jesus, how, how, how much we want to and how committed we are to serving Jesus should make it actually, in comparison, look like we hate our life. Does that make sense? It's a comparison thing. It's a priority thing. The reality is, is for the believer, if you put your trust in Jesus Christ, your old self, your old life is dead and gone. And we have been given a new one. 2 Corinthians 5, 14 through 15 says, For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for the sake died and was raised. (laughs) He died for us, taking all of our sins and failures, and by faith that old person died with him. And we are given a new life so that we can live to him. And this is, is really what, what I think bothers a lot of people. It's a point of contention for those who aren't Christians. And, and, and uh, you know, we're hoping that they will be. And even for some Christians, this becomes a point of contention. Because in order to follow Jesus, to be a disciple, your life has to change. And the reality is, is that 
people somehow think that in order to serve Jesus, you enter into some sort of some sort of slavery, some sort of servitude, which is true to an extent. But the problem is, is people don't realize that you're always a slave to something. You can either be a slave to righteousness or you can be a slave to the devil. And I've had so many people when I talk to them, uh, especially when I used to work in a restaurant, I would talk to them about Christ. Like, man, I don't want to be a Christian because then I won't be able to do, I won't be free to do all the stuff I want to do. I won't be free to drink. I won't be free to smoke. I won't be free to, to mess around with girls. I won't be free to do all these things. And I said, if you think you're so free, then don't do them for two weeks. The thing is, is no one's willing to accept that because they don't realize they're actually not free. They're in bondage to all of those things. They've been deceived to think that they're wonderful. But the truth is, is that they're already a slave to those things. But like I said, it's a point of contention because in order to serve Jesus, your life has to change. It has to look different than what it did before. And then uh, I think a genuine question to ask too for Christians is, well, if this is what's the case, how, how is it even possible we can do it? Because the reality is, is that all of my wants and desires are so prevalent in my life, you know? And many times our wants and desires are at odds with what God wants for our lives. And to any of us that are struggling with that, I would encourage you, just begin to spend more and more time in your word and in prayer. The Bible says that we're to renew our mind, and that's how you do it. And here's the thing, that the more time you spend with God and you learn about who He is and you learn about who you are, you begin to think more and more like God. And it's no longer a question of, well, I want to do what I want to do, but God wants me to do what He wants me to do. You'll find yourself one day going, wait a minute, what God wants me to do is actually what I want to do. It turns out that your desires become the same as his desires as you continue to walk with him. You'll be surprised how quickly it happens. Your own desires and ambitions will align with him. And then he goes on to say, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. If you want to be a servant of Jesus, you must follow him. Another word for servant here, you say, if you want to be a disciple of Jesus... We must follow him. Now, I also want to remind you that this doesn't mean that our life is now going to be miserable. God's going to take away all of our fun and we're not going to be able to do anything that we want to do. It doesn't mean that you're not going to have fun or you're going to experience uh, uh, lack of something, lack of happiness or be without anything. It doesn't even mean you won't have your own desires and ambitions. Like I said, they'll just no longer be worldly. You'll notice that they are more in line with good wants. And it doesn't mean you won't ever be able to realize any of your own dreams or ambitions. It just means that your primary purpose is to glorify and honor God. And anything that you do that is going to be at odds with honoring and glorifying God, then those things you just need to let go. And the truth is, when it talks about following Jesus, we're not being asked to do anything Jesus wasn't willing to do himself. So Jesus is asking us to give up our own life. Well, he gave up his first. And then Jesus says in verse 27, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. 
but for this purpose I have come to this hour. You know, John doesn't write about Jesus' experience in the Garden of Gethsemane prior to his death. Um, you remember that this is where Jesus was out there praying. He brought the disciples. They couldn't stay awake. He ends up being just distraught and stressed to the point that he's sweating blood. It's an interesting note that this is a true physical phenomenon. Like, you know, we read the Bible and people want to talk about being fairy tales. No, this is something that actually happens to people when they become so distraught. Capillaries will actually burst. And when they sweat, it'll mix with the blood and it looks like they're sweating blood. This is a real phenomenon. But in the other Gospels, Jesus describes the agony that he's in and, and what he's about to experience. Like I said, to such an extent that his body had a physical, visceral reaction to what he was expecting in his future. But in John's Gospel, this is the only instance where we show that, that it shows that Jesus is... Uh, even troubled at all about what was to come. And here's the thing. When Jesus walked this earth, he was fully man. Now, he didn't stop being God. But he did. the scripture does say that he didn't consider divinity a thing to be grasped. He set it aside and he walked fully as man. When Jesus went to the cross, he felt all the pain. He experienced all the suffering. He didn't have some godly trick up his sleeve where it wasn't going to impact him. It's one of the reasons why his sacrifice was suitable. It's because he was just like us. You know, me and Stephen were talking the other night about Jesus when he lived and, and what he went through. And, 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 and uh, one of the things that we discussed was did Jesus have a choice? Now, personally, I believe that Jesus lived fully as a man and he had a choice. He could have walked away. He could have called down angels from heaven. He could have done all. Now, let me explain this. This is a theoretical choice. It was possible, but because Jesus walked fully in the will of God, it wasn't possible. Does that make sense? It was a physical possibility but not a genuine possibility because Jesus walked fully in the will of God. He was never going to step outside of the will of God. But the possibility was there. And because he experienced all the same things that we experienced. And he's, he says, now my soul is troubled. Like he, he wasn't looking forward to what he was about to go forward and deal with. But the scripture says because of the joy that was set before him, he endured it. And the joy was you and me. We were worth it to him for him to go through it. Like I said, Jesus was faithful to his purpose. Like he understood. He says, listen, now my soul is troubled, but what should I say? Father, save me from this hour? Well, no, that doesn't make sense because if, if God were to save me from this hour, I wouldn't be walking in the will of God. He knew that he came for a purpose. For this very purpose, this very hour was why he came. It would have been impossible for him to fulfill his mission had God saved him from it and took it away. So just like in the Garden of Gethsemane when he says, Lord, if there's any other way that you can take this cup from me, but not my will, your will be done. It shows here that he couldn't ask to be saved from what was to come because if he did, he wouldn't be able to fulfill the very purpose which God had sent him to.
So then right after this, in verse 28 and 29, it says, Father, glorify your name then. Glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. And the crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. And others said, an angel has spoken to him. You see, Jesus recognized what his purpose was, and he put his eyes back on the Father. He recognized that he was there to glorify the Father, and he prays, Father, glorify your name. Because Jesus was fully submitted and committed to the will of the Father. And this should be an example for each and every one of us. Even in difficult times, even sometimes when it doesn't even make sense, we can't see the light at the end of the tunnel. We should be submitting to the will of the Father. Even if we have conflicting emotions and thoughts. And like I said in the beginning, this is the third time that we have God speaking audibly in Jesus' ministry. Although this time it seems a little bit different. It seems like some didn't understand what was being said. Some said, man, it is thundered. And others said, an angel has spoken to him. But at least one person understood what was said because John was able to write it down for us. And God clarifies that I've already glorified it and I'm going to glorify it again. He made it clear that he was going to fulfill his purpose in Jesus because this is why Jesus had came. And then in verse 30, Jesus answered, This voice has come for your sake and not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. And he said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. See, Jesus already knew that God was faithful and that he would be glorifying his name through him. So this voice wasn't for Jesus. This voice was actually spoken aloud for those around him. You know, these things that, that happened, as we talked about last week, I began to see all the little pieces that God's been putting in place for this entire time to prepare people. So that way, when, when this all happened and, and the disciples were scared, when they finally saw Jesus' uh, resurrection, they go, oh, wait a minute. Now I can put together all the pieces. Now I see what was happening. When they're, they're getting ready to run away, when Jesus is crucified, and be scattered, you know, this was hopefully there to encourage them that no, God was in fact working. God was glorifying Himself through Jesus. Jesus then knew, knowing what would be accomplished by His death, He declares, now is the judgment of this world, and now will the ruler of this world be cast out. You see, if you guys remember in the beginning, the servant would have his heel bruised by the serpent. And that's Jesus. Jesus going to the cross, even though what he went through is absolutely utter and utterly horrific, was equated to a heel being bruised. But his death and resurrection would ultimately end with the crushing of the serpent's head. Complete victory. His power over people through sin and death would be broken 
and everyone who put their trust in him would receive freedom and victory and eternal life. And then when Jesus mentions up here, when I'm being lifted up from the earth, he wasn't referring to his resurrection. He wasn't referring to his ascension, but rather how he would be killed on the cross. As I understand, this term being lifted up was actually a, a common kind of colloquial term. They knew what it meant. That meant that the person was going to die. And Jesus said, when I am lifted up, I will draw all people to myself. Now, this doesn't mean that everyone will be saved. The scripture's clear that you have to put your trust in him by faith to receive salvation. But it's declared that it is available to all here. I mean, he is going to draw all men to himself. Now it's unfortunate that some will still reject him, even though he gave up everything for each and every one of us. And then people will complain, why would God send people to hell? God hasn't sent anybody to hell. Matter of fact, he made a way so that everybody could be saved. So here it's declared that this salvation is going to be available for all without any discrimination. Not just the Jews, but every people of this earth. And the truth is, the love of Jesus, this love that he has for all people, that is demonstrated and proven by his willingness to go to the cross, is going to draw people to him. How many of you know that this kind of love is understood universally? Somebody giving their life for someone else is understood universally. And this kind of love is desired universally as well. I think we can all say that, that we want people to love us this much. And it's incredibly sad to me that so many will be drawn to this love but still ultimately reject it. And then we'll go ahead and finish up here in verse 34 through 36. So the crowd answered him, We have heard from the law that Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. And the one who walks in the darkness does not know where he's going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. And when Jesus said these things, he departed and hid, them, hid himself from them. The people that were listening to Jesus speak, they knew the law, they studied the law, they knew that the law said that the Son of Man would remain forever. And they also knew that the Son of Man referred to the Christ. They also believed that Jesus was claiming to be the Messiah. We know this because they showed up in droves with palm trees claiming here comes the king. So they didn't understand what Jesus was saying when he said that this son of man would be lifted up. Because like I said, they knew what that meant. They knew that, that him saying the son of man would be lifted up means that the son of man would die. And they couldn't put the two together. They said, wait a minute, the, the scripture says that the Son of Man, the Christ, would remain forever, but now you're saying that the Christ is going to die. So they say, wait a minute, if that's the case, the Son of Man that we know about is going to live forever. Who's this Son of Man that you're talking about? 
if this son of man that you're talking about could die, who is he? Because it doesn't line up with what we think we know. You know, and it's funny when we read this stuff because it's so easy with hindsight to go, man, these guys are just so dumb. Why don't they get it? Why don't they just understand it? We have hindsight. We understand that, yes, that Jesus would die physically, but he would still live forever. He would still remain forever. But Jesus doesn't attempt to explain it to them. You know, the thing is, is that Jesus had been teaching and telling them for several years now. He had given them all the information that they needed. So instead of trying to explain it to them one more time, instead he just encourages them to walk in the light while he still remained. Because Jesus knew that he was about to die. And as such, the light of his, his physical presence on the earth would be going out. He wanted them to believe now in him, to already begin putting their trust in him so that they would not go be drawn astray when this happened. Now we know the rest of the story, if you're familiar with it. So many were drawn astray. Matter of fact, most of the people who were waving palm branches and calling him king would actually begin crying, crucify him. He said, no, while you have the light, Believe in the light that you may become sons of light so that it wouldn't be stolen away from them. Because if they would put their faith in him, even now, they could pass out of spiritual darkness into spiritual light. Into the light of salvation. But then after he had said these things to them, given them one last instruction to walk in the light, it says that he departed and he hid themselves from them. They had been given every opportunity to believe. At some point, you no longer have that opportunity. You have to make a decision for us that live today. You have until the moment you die to make that decision. And at that point, the time has come. And just like here, he had already been teaching. As a matter of fact, really the public ministry of Jesus ends right here. We have a few more chapters of, of Jesus uh, with his disciples, giving more teaching with his disciples. And thank God we have that recorded for us today. But his public ministry essentially ends in the Gospel of John here. He had given them the opportunity. He departed and hid himself from them. And church, they had an opportunity to believe. Some did just so on surface level, and it was stolen away from them. And like I said, in a few days, they're going to be crying, crucify him. But the reality is, is, this is the same truth for all of us. We've been given an opportunity to believe. So if you've not put your trust in Jesus, today is the day of salvation. Amen.